Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your wonderful grace, the provision of even a building, Father, where we could meet and we can be edified in Your Word and even wrestle with the implications of what Your Word has to say about marriage and family. Father, thank You that You have not left us confused. You have been very clear with us from Your Word as to the theological framework, your framework for understanding marriage and family. And you have also been very clear about roles and responsibilities and how we should flesh those out. And obviously, Father, we look to your principles to even have wisdom as to this unique situations and how we should respond even in unfavorable circumstances, especially with unmet expectations sometimes in marriage that we might have. Father, we need your grace you would help us to apply wisdom to those situations. There are very unique uh, situations, problems, even turmoil that we experience. And so I pray that, Lord, you would be gracious to your people and you would allow us to be able to apply ourselves in a way that, is, that honors you, in a way that shows love to others and how we apply these principles to our marriages. Father, be with us even now. I pray that it would be spiritually fruitful time for your people as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, brethren. Well, as you know, Sunday mornings in this particular um, equipping class or workshop, we've been really wrestling with a biblical framework. Okay, I want you to think of it that way, sort of like a picture frame. Before we get into the actual picture and the portrait of what um, individual roles look like, there's a frame, right? There's a frame, and so we have a biblical or theological framework that we've been trying to understand, and obviously we don't have to come up with this stuff from psychology, from other um, sources. We look to God's Word. God has been very clear with us about how we should do that. And so that's what we've been working through for three weeks now. And this is our fourth week getting into that a biblical framework for understanding marriage and where our problems come from in marriage. Okay? Next week and the following week, before first week of March, uh, Pastor Paul and I will be gone for uh, the Shepherds Conference. But we have actually three more Sundays. So we have three more Sundays where I'm going to be really delving into individual roles within marriage. Okay, we're going to get into the man's role and the woman's role uh, within marriage and talk about biblical headship, talk about just how we flesh this out as men and women in the context of the family, and hopefully uh, continue to get some more Q&A going. I know that there are some, some unique circumstances that people walk through, right? Not everything is cut and dry. I understand that. So uh, we look to the Word of God with clarity and for guidance, but we also understand that we need to apply wisdom in individual situations that are very unique. And I know that there's some individual hardships that people experience, both men and women in the context of churches. So I want you to know that we're going there, especially as we dive into individual roles. But we need to understand, and we, this is where we began last week, understanding what went wrong, right? Remember, what we, remember where we've been? We went from the crises of marriage and uh, the fact that not only is this a global thing, that marriages are really in turmoil, but it's also an American thing, and it infiltrates into the church because we live in a fallen, broken world. So there, is, there are a lot of, and we have obviously, we're not perfected as uh, husbands and wives, so there is a crisis that we're facing and experiencing. But we said that we need to look to the answer, and the answer is God's Word. So we began delving into foundational principles and implications or takeaways, if you remember, derived from God's design and what He gave us. Okay, And then last week, 
we began talking about Genesis 3 and what went wrong. How things began to spiral downward, right? At the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, if you're there, we have this wonderful vertical relationship with God, right? The man and the wife and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's not just a statement about their relationship, but also they were naked and unashamed before the Lord, right? And so there's this wonderful uh, close communion that Adam and Eve had with God, their Creator, and our Creator. And then Genesis 3 hits, right? And there's no chapter 3 in the original, obviously, in our Bibles there is, but it just goes right into that transition of now the serpent. Now the serpent. And we saw that in other places like Revelation, the serpent is Satan, the dragon of old, right? And so this, the serpent in verses 1 through 7 of Genesis basically deceive uh, Eve, and then Adam is right there, right? Abdicating his role. We're going to look at that in a, in a second. But we see what went wrong, and we called it the great reversal, humanity's rebellion, right? Where our problems began. Think about that. Um, I do want to make a, 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 just a, an implicational statement about what went wrong in the fall. I think... I was thinking about that this week, and even for my own marriage, I know Andrea would tell you the same thing. There's nothing more valuable in a marriage than approaching things and being shaped by grace, right? So grace doesn't condone, diminish, sweeps in under the rug. Uh, Grace doesn't mean we don't address sin, right? Obviously, if we address every single flaw in our spouse, we'd be talking about stuff every single day, all day long about sin, right? So there's that sense of love covers a multitude of sins. But grace, so grace doesn't condone or diminish the importance of sin or, or the seriousness of sin or, or set it aside. But grace, brethren, the way that I would put it, grace shapes and informs and frames our approach to addressing sin with one another. And I think one of the most helpful things as you think about the fall is that um, it is personal. There is, when, when your spouse sins against you, it is first and foremost against God. Think about that. It's vertical. You're sinning against the Lord. But also, because God cares about the way that we treat one another, we sin against our spouse. So there is that reality. And that's where forgiveness comes in and listening and reconciliation comes in. Communication, all of those wonderful things. We're going to get into some of that. But, the, but you need to remember that, if you, that there's this framework of the fall, right? And if we're going to be gracious to one another in our marriages then ultimately, ultimately, that's the key word, it is not personal toward you when, you're, when your spouse sins against you. It isn't. Right? There's something that's happened. We live in a broken, fallen world. Now that doesn't mean that as a spouse, if you're the, the offender, that you say, hey, the fall, you know, the fall? Remember Pastor Campus, session four, the fall, right? I don't have to ask for your forgiveness. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, because of the fall and because of a broken, fallen world, there are going to be weaknesses, there are going to be failures, there are going to be sins that we're going to commit against each other. We should communicate and make those right and forgive and reconcile. But remember, if you're going to approach things graciously, there is this massive thing, this this great reversal, right? Human rebellion that happened at the beginning. And according to Romans chapter 5, Adam is our, our headship, right? Our head, as far as humanity goes. And because of him, obviously we are also sinners. But then there's the greater Adam, right? What's his name? The Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that at the end today. 
He is the one that now is our righteousness. So we don't excuse our sin. Don't diminish it. Don't set it aside. Anything like that because we're gracious, right? Grace merely informs, shapes, and frames the way that we approach um, sin in our marriages. And that's because of the fall, right? We'll talk about grace more later on. So last week, um, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And here's where we began seeing the effects of the fall. I hope this is big enough for you guys. Is this big enough for you guys? Great. Okay, so we looked at the effects of the fall. We saw that, the, that, that one of the consequences, the primary consequence of the fall was this relational breach that took place on the vertical level. Vertical, right? Us and God. Verses 8 through 11. We saw that last week. I don't want to take too much time to review that again, but um, just the reality that now all of a sudden, right? God is looking for them. God is not trying to find answers like He doesn't know what happened. He's drawing them out with His questions so that they can process through what just happened in verses 8 through 11. But there's this breach now. There's this problem that they have. And even later on, right in verses 20 to 24 of chapter 3, we're going to see how God um, casts them out of the garden. And I would make this statement about those verses, verses 20 to 24. People often think, well, wow, penalty, punishment. God cast them out. But think about this. If they dwell continually in that state, in that, in that setting, they will live forever in that state of sin, right? So God casts them out of the garden. But there's now this breach. There isn't that sweet communion anymore with God, with their Creator. And so we saw this relational breach, verses 8 through 11. And then there's a relational breach on the horizontal level, right? With Ad, between Adam and Eve. And we're going to see even more extensively uh, with, with the words that Satan or God pronounces to uh, Eve in just a couple of minutes. There's this now breach that takes place between husband and wife. Right there. Now there's blame shifting taking place. Before Adam is saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? Now what is he going to be saying? Pain of my pain, right? Burden of my burdens. That's kind of our, could be our attitude when we're not walking by the Spirit. There's, this is where it began. Forgetting about God's goodness. Forgetting about God's kindness and the spouse that He has given us. So there's this relational breach now. And there's pointing of fingers rather than taking personal responsibility and ownership for our own faults in our marriages, right? Which comes from a heart of humility. Now there's a sense of pride now. And it's his fault. It's her fault. It's the serpent's fault. So a relational breach, excuse me, on the horizontal level. Verses 12 and 13. Now, what I really want to delve into in this session is this. There's a roles and responsibilities battle that ensues. Okay? Verses 14 through 24. Primarily verses... Um, 14 through 19, we see this. He rolls in responsibilities battle that ensues. And we're going to come back to the serpent in verses, in verses 14 and 15 for a reason, right? But I want us to go to the woman first and the words that God had for Eve as we look at the effects and the consequences of the fall. Notice this. Verse 16, To the woman, he, God, said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is a pretty pregnant verse right here. Okay? But this is, think about that again. Remember our frame? God had given Adam and Eve particular responsibilities and roles. 
ontological equality. Remember, ontology has to do with our being, our essence, who we are. There's ontological equality in who we are. But then there's roles and responsibilities. So there's distinction of roles and responsibilities. Equality, distinctions. Okay? And Adam and Eve were not called to sameness. They are equal, but they weren't called to flesh out the exact same role, right? There might be some similarities, but they don't flesh out the exact same role. That's God's perfect design, right? If there wouldn't have been sin, we would have seen that even fleshed out perfectly in Adam and Eve. Now there's sin, there's a distortion, there's a deception that's come in, there's a twisting of God's Word, and we saw that the fall is really an attack on the character of God and an attack on His Word. Remember that? And now there's a twisting or a distorting of the roles and responsibilities of man and woman, of husband and wife. And a battle ensues, not only against God, but also against one another. And we see this evident in the words that God pronounces to the woman and to the man. In particular, to the woman. By the way, the woman only gets one verse. And us guys, we get three brothers. So that kind of says something, right? But there are hard words to the woman too in verse, verse 16. Notice, right? I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. We can sum, sum up the effects of the fall upon the woman. And obviously you can hang a lot of other things on these two rods, right? But two primary things. Pain in childbirth, right? Pain in childbirth. So you can thank... Eve, ladies, for when, you know, past and future. You know, thanks a lot, Sister Eve, for um, doing what you did. Right? Pain in childbirth. Is, is having babies the problem? No. It, are, what, is, what does Psalm 121 say? Children are a what? Are a gift from the Lord, right? The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, right? So are our children that we sort of shoot out into the world so that they are on mission for Christ, right? So our children are a blessing, are a gift. Don't ever say, you know, man, because as a result of the fall, these kids, you know, no, 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 no. The, the kids are, are a gift, right? The kids are a gift. By the way, I would even add, add this, because I, I talked to somebody this week who had a question related to this. That also means that when there is some kind of a tragedy from a human perspective, it's not the baby that's the problem. Right? Some people say, well, a woman is mishandled and all of that, right? And something happens out of wedlock and there's a baby, right, that is conceived. Is the baby the sin? No, the act, right? The wrongness of that. And God will judge that. And that is very difficult because how do we, how do we navigate those kinds of situations here on earth? We understand that. But at the end of the day, that baby is a blessing, Right? The means by which, through which that baby came to be is not, right? That wasn't right. That is an affront to God's holy name. And so we have to be very careful. Some people use this text, believe it or not, and I've spoken to people who spoken to others in other places, not here at Eastridge, but others who, who viewed something that happens negatively in a woman's life, and now all of a sudden the baby's the problem. So we have to abort the baby. We have to kill the baby. No. We are about the sanctity of human life because God is about the sanctity of human life, right? So you can't use this text, you know, to play fast and loose with it and say, oh, it's, it's the baby's fault. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but now there's pain, right? And then the second thing is a, the latter part of this verse here, and it's kind of a parallelism here. Whatever the first part of the verse means, it's got it's to be consistent with the latter, right? 
But he says, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. At first glance, that might come across like, you know, you're going to have pain in childbirth, yet you're still going to want to be with your husband intimately. And I don't think that that is the most, the most consistent, exegetically accurate way to approach this verse here. Notice what he says, yet your desire will be for your husband and, they go together, right, these two statements, and he will rule over you. Whatever the first part means, it's got to be consistent with the other and it's got to contrast the latter, right? Be the opposite. And so the idea here is this, that word rule at the end of verse 16 is, is the word to reign. To reign. And I think that this is what we are being told here, right? There's this connotation, negative connotation in this text of dom- domination. There's this domination now that's going to happen, right? And on her side, her desire will be for your husband in what sense? Before, right, he's her head, right, who has been given delegated authority, authority to shepherd her, to serve her, to love her. And now what's going to happen? She's going to want to grab a hold of the steering wheel, right? Is that a reality in, in our marriages? Come on, everybody. Let's, let's confess right now. Confession time, right? To some extent or another, we see it in our marriages over the years, right? Instead of where, you know, a wife, it's, it's good to express opinions. It's good to express your point of view. And actually, good husbands who love their wives should be, she is your closest confidant, your best friend, your partner in life. You should trust her so much that you value your wife's input. My wife is the first woman I go to or the first person, period, that I go to when I'm seeking wisdom on a particular area of life. Decision-making, right? I don't see me being the point leader, point person in our marriage as like, I make all the decisions and who cares what my wife thinks, right? No. But there's a difference between that and then, and then a wife when, unless there's some biblical violation, something clearly in the text, right, where your husband's going in a direction where it's sinful, it's rebellious, it's whatever, obviously you don't follow him in that, Right? Maybe you invite somebody else to come alongside of you guys and speak into that issue, seek wisdom. But short of that, right? a wife is to follow her husband. We'll talk about this next week for wives and the role of, of wives. You're to follow your husband. Now there's this reversal where her desire will be for that role that he has. Right? And the opposite of that is he's going to dominate her. So she wants control. Generally speaking, right? Say, well, husbands want control too. Yes, absolutely. Right? We will use in our sinfulness, in our fleshliness, when we're operating outside of the Spirit's control, we will use our authority in wrong ways and distorted ways and not in ways that God designed for us to use that authority. And that is sinful too. But short of that, oftentimes wives want to grab a hold of the steering wheel. They want to lead the relationship, Right? Obviously, there's so much to talk about in individual cases, and I get that. There's some uniqueness here. That's why when somebody asks me a question about this, you know, submission, are there any limits to submission? Yes, there are. We'll talk about some of those. There are limits to submission as well for wives, right? But But oftentimes, women will also bring that up in counseling, or wives will, when and then we begin to unpack this, and it's very clear that what they want is control of the relationship. They want their way. They want to do things. They, they, there's a particular decision that they disagreed with, and they have to make sure that they dig in their heels to make sure that it goes that direction. This is the origin of that, brothers and sisters. 
right here. It is a consequence, the desire for control on one spouse or the other, but here we're highlighting the role of wife, a desire for control, and on the other hand, his dominating spirit is sinful before the Lord. It's a distortion of God's beautiful design. And think about this. We're dealing with extremes here in verse 16, right? On the one hand, men, at least in my counseling days, have been either on one extreme or the other, rarely balanced. There's either a very passive uh, approach that men take to leading their wives, or there's a domineering kind of an approach that they take, where they're dictators of their, their families, manipulators even, right? Those are the extremes. And obviously we can talk about all the different variations and shades of those two extremes. But that's what you have. Both of those. A man who abdicates his role and is passive as Adam was here, where he's just, it's evident that, most evident that he was there, right? And he just partakes, follows her, doesn't say, hey, God's priorities are greater than yours, than you, Eve. I need, we need to follow the Lord. God said. That would have been him loving his wife too, by the way, right? So there's a, there's a real responsibility, brothers, that we have not to be passive on the one hand like the Adam, but then on the other hand, that we would not be domineering, manipulative, that we would not misuse the God-given delegated authority. And always remember it that way. It's delegated. It's for a purpose. What's the purpose? To love our wives, to care for them, to serve them, to lay down our lives for them, right? And I know that we're all growing in that area, but these are the distortions so we see a little bit of this in verse 16. Oh, so much more to say about that, but let's, um, let's go to Adam, verse 6, 17. We'll go back to verses 14 and 15. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil or sorrow, that's the Hebrew word sorrow, anguish, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pretty clear at the end there, right? Death is coming, Adam. I told you. Right? If you, part, you have full freedom... I'm good, I'm kind, you have full freedom. But if you do this one thing, what's going to happen? You will die. What did the serpent say? You won't surely die. Or you, that's not going to happen, right? It says, no, you're going to die. But go back to verses 17 and 18. There's also going to be this sense in, in which work, employment, right? Uh, vocation, all of that is not a result of the fall. I've talked to some young young men especially, right? Because this is a spirit of the age is like laziness, you know? It's like <laughs> a lot of young men don't want to work. There's a difference in work ethic these days. Would you guys say an amen to that? And we I, we see it with young men. They don't like to work hard. <laughs> I remember one time, well, you know, it's a result of the fall. I go, what is a result of the fall? Well, work. No, it's not. Right? When did God give Adam the charge to take care, be, basically be the steward of his creation? Before Genesis 3. So work, hard work, right? Paul tells Timothy, right? Uh, and, in, and even Thessalonica, teach them to work with their own hands. To work hard, right? 
It's a God-glorifying thing. It's absolutely a way that you glorify God, working hard with your hands. But now there's going to be toil and anguish and sorrow, and there's going to be a struggle even in our work, right? Do you ever feel like you work enough, men? <laughs> there's always work, huh? Always work. Some of you were looking forward to retirement, and now like you're still working some more, you know? So there's this, this struggle that's going to come now. And then um, the sweat of your face, right? The descriptive terms in verse 19, the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. So it's going to be hard work constantly to just provide for your family till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So struggle, turmoil is going gonna, is gonna to take place. Um, go back to uh, verse 17. That's what I wanted to get at. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Does that, is God saying there, Adam, you shouldn't listen to your wife? Right? Didn't I tell you, don't, don't listen to Eve? She doesn't know what she's talking about. Right? Believe it or not, I've had men allude to this text. But see, that's the problem, you know, listening to her. It's like, no, the problem is not. It depends on what you mean by listening to her. Right? There's a listening so as to appropriate, Right? Jesus speaks about that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is hearing so as to appropriate, right, to apply to your life. So listening to our wives, 1 Peter 3, 7, is something that God requires of us. It says there to live with our wives in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge. So in the sense there, the picture is we need to be students of our wives and draw them out. How? By questions, conversation, spending time with them, prioritizing time with them that is undistracted. Yes, there's informal uh, seasons. Uh, there's always the informal conversation, but also even setting aside time to listen to our wives and to draw out their hearts, right? It's this listening reality as husbands that we need to flesh out. So First Peter 3.7 speaks of that. We're going to talk about this, brothers, in a couple of Sundays. Uh, maybe I'll hit the men first next week. How about that? What, what do you think, ladies? We should hit the men first next week or... All right. Thumbs, okay, brother, sorry. You know. Should I take a vote? Should I take a vote, brothers? All right. We'll hit the men first, right? <laughs> We're going to talk about the importance of listening to our wives, right? And maybe even um, talk about some practical um, ways that we can do that. God is talking here about not that you listen to your wife in the sense of your sensitivity, but in the sense that you followed her above me. Right? He put Eve's voice above the voice of, of God. We just talked about this on Friday night in our Valentine's banquet. Remember the point of the whole thing was? Jesus has to be first. He is the biggest voice with a capital V before even we can even love one another. And even our love for one another is the, out, the overflow of our love, that, that the love that God has for us and the love that we express for Him. So think about that. He listened to her, elevated Eve. There's a sense in which we can make our spouse an idol. Ever think about that? This is one way that we can do that. When we follow the word of the other person above God and what God says in His word. Now obviously it's always very important if you do have a disagreement to that extent that you seek counsel from others, right? You dig into God's word, you're praying together, you've talked things out, and if it comes down to, okay, what direction we disagree on this, hey, let's seek the counsel of somebody else. To make sure that we are not listening to one another above God's priorities. There are wisdom issues that require that. 
We've all experienced maybe a little bit of that and have been asked questions of wisdom. So Adam abdicated his role. Remember the great reversal in this battle that ensues now in his, in his own role? He's to be leader. He's to be the one who is, um, uh, she follows him. He's the point guy. He's the point guy in the relationship. He's going to have to answer to God. And what does he do? Seems like the text is telling us that the whole time he's there, right? Chapter 3, verse 6, the, the husband that was there with her, he ate. Most likely, most conservative commentators would tell you that that is indicative of the fact that Adam was probably there the whole time. And he doesn't ever even speak up. Maybe he was pulling on her. Who knows, right? We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. But he abdicates his role. And so, brothers, think about that. Whenever we abdicate our role and we take a passive, a passive approach to leadership in our home, you're actually in sin. If you're not leading your family proactively, you're being passive, you're actually in sin. And this is the origin of that. Right? Or, if you're being a domineering type of a man who is manipulative and a dictator, you're also in sin and you're misusing the, the delegated authority that God has given you. Huge. Huge for us to be thinking about and considering. So there's this distortion and this reversal, right? Alright. Back to verse 14. Notice this. Because up until this point, man, if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, right, and we just read that, That'd be a pretty hopeless situation, right? Husband, wife, man, this is going to be a knockdown drag out for the rest of our marriage. There's no hope for this. But back in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, Verse 14 really does apply specifically to these things called snakes, doesn't it? I mean, is Satan the one that's crawling around? All this is not figurative speech here, right? He's not speaking figuratively in that verse. There's a literal sense here. Is it Satan who's going to be crawling around all over the ground? I think there is a double meaning here, but there's a greater meaning that we're going to see in verse 15. There are these slithering things, and I think that is part of the fall. Did serpents before the fall fly? Do they have wings? We don't know, right? But we know what happens after the fall. But then here's the key, verse 15, and that's why I put an asterisk on this. It's, it's clear from verse 15 that God is... There are bigger, greater implications to His, to his words here. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. What does that mean? If, we're, if we keep it at... It's, all it is is just snakes, verse 14. Does this mean, according to verse 15, that all that God is talking about is that snakes are going to be going at it with you ladies for your whole, whole existence? It can't mean that, right? I will put enmity. There's this friction. There's this war. There's this tension. There's this conflict, he's saying, that's going to exist between you and the woman serpent. And he explains it. And this is kind of one of those explanatory ands, Okay? explanatory ends because he clarifies what he means and between your seed and her seed he's talking about something bigger here your seed and her seed your seed satan there are two kingdoms now if you will being spoken of here light and darkness and when you look at scripture write down all of those uh, those uh, statements about darkness and light right good and evil 
The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. All throughout Scripture, you see those two kingdoms at war with each other. In the rest of Scripture, this is the origin of it right here. And between your seed and her seed, what is this going to look like? He shall bruise you on the head. Whoever this he is, is going to bruise, and the Hebrew there is the idea of crushing, of delivering a death blow to someone. So he's saying, your seed, woman, the, the, the one who comes forth from you, he's going to bruise or crush the serpent on the head. It's a death blow that he's going to deliver. And you, the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. Right? A bruise is not a, a, a death blow, right? It's not. It's a bruise. It's, it's affliction upon somebody. But it's not a death blow as he says that the one in the future, whoever he is, shall bruise or crush the serpent on the head. Deliver a, a death blow upon the serpent. This is, verse 15, good news amidst the bad news, right? Good news amidst the bad news. This is what is known as the proto-euangelion. Okay, two Greek words. Protos, which means first, and euangelion, good news. We get our word gospel or to evangelize from euangelion. Two words, protos, euangelion, the first gospel or the first good news. Isn't that amazing? So think about this. It's the chapter on the fall. It's the chapter of the great rebellion and, and reversal, right? Obviously, the breach of the vertical and horizontal relationships is also the great reversal of roles and distortion of roles. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the effects or the consequences, God says, there is hope. I put, I put together a plan from before the foundation of the world for there to be hope, right? A proto-euangelion. I love it's hope for humanity and a future Messiah. R.C. Sproul, I like what he says here. Verse 15 is the proto-euangelion. The first gospel, it proclaims that God's people will finally triumph over the serpent. The seed of the woman, important exegetical detail here, the seed of the woman is a collective noun indicating corporate victory. And fast forward to Romans chapter 5, right? Adam is the head of the human race. He fell short. Remember, Jesus is the Redeemer, right? Who, who is victorious. That happens in the future. So there's this two kingdoms in conflict with each other. However, if left to ourselves, we cannot win this war. No, it took the Lord Jesus, Eve's seed, Eve's seed par excellence, to deliver the crushing blow, Colossians 2.15. And if we are in Him, we share in and extend His victory. And I like the references to Matthew, the Great Commission in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, right? Speaking of the fact that we as God's missionaries were about proclaiming Christ so that God is renewing now people's lives. People come to know Christ. They're born again. And now the, they begin to experience and taste of that holy type of living because of Jesus and the Spirit of God that dwells inside of them. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ won the decisive victory over Satan through his death and resurrection, the devil destined for eternal destruction, even though he now futilely assaults the people of God. While we must be aware of his threat, we must never fear, fear him if we are in Christ. Moreover, the Lord calls us to fight against the devil through prayer and evangelism. Pray today for the defeat of Satan in the world and in the church. 
Think about that. God is, is doing an amazing work through His Gospel, right? He's not done yet. The reason why we are here, brethren, as I said in the first uh, hour, we are here on mission. We're missionaries. Our great vocation is not even our secular job. That is absolutely valuable, absolutely need to glorify God in that context, as long as you recognize that it's one part of the bigger picture. And you are employed as a gospel minister, right? You're a gospel missionary. And so, even though Christ has delivered the death blow, right, there's still this sense in which God has in His grace, uh, allowed us to partner with Him in proclaiming the gospel so that more people are added to His kingdom. And of course, we can get into election and predestination and all of that. All I can tell you about that is this. There's a reason why God has us here. Yes, He's chosen people. People are not walking around with an E for elect on their backs. You know what I'm saying? So what is our job? To be faithful. Because we want to see Genesis chapter 15, or 315 fleshed out all the more, Right? And we know, that's a promise, by the way, Genesis 3.15, about the fact that we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. Think about this. When you consider your, your marriage, and there are often times I'm sure that you come to the point of thinking, man, things are so bad. Things are so difficult. And we do get to those seasons in our marriages, don't we? Remember the hope of Christ. That God is not only about saving us from the, from the punishment of our sin that we deserve, brethren, but He's also continuously in Christ um, delivering us from the power, from sin's grip over our lives. In our personal lives and in our marriages. So is there hope for our marriages? There absolutely is. But oftentimes we go to other places, other sources to look for that hope and we don't consider the Word of God sufficient and we don't leverage even the church. The one entity that God promised would, um, would never be set aside here in this world, right? The church. We don't leverage the church. We don't center our lives around the church even for, our, for the sake of our marriages. So think about that. The sufficiency of the Word of God, the centrality of the church are two of the primary means by which God is actually doing Genesis 3.15, right? So there's the reality that Jesus has done that work, but now the wonderful fruit of that victory, that death blow, is this renewing of us individually as Christians and of our marriages, restoring our marriages so that we reflect Christ and the church, right? I love this good news for the world. This is where everything is headed, okay? When we read this text... Or as we read it together, just think about Genesis 3, Romans 8, 18. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us when in the future. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Think about what he's saying there. It's like you would expect him to just get personal for each individual Christian. He says, there's this anxious longing on the part of the universe itself. So there was this cosmic reality that happened in Genesis 3. Right? Yes, there's this personal breach, but also God curses in Genesis 3, 3 the, the world. Right? The toil, right? Men, the affliction that will come with work. Ladies, even the pain in childbirth. Animals, right? In Ezekiel, we get a picture of the, of the wonderful you know, um, millennial kingdom where it says that animals will dwell with each other, the lion with the lamb, you know? Genesis 3 distorted that. Where even there's this, this tension between uh, living creatures like animals. 
right? So there's this cosmic thing that is taking place, but God is re- restoring it, and one day He's going to destroy it. The elements will melt with intense heat, it says in Second Peter. Everything will be destroyed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth according to the end of Revelation. For the creation was subjected to futility. So This is looking back now to Genesis 3. God subjected it, right? Not willingly, but because of Him, God, who subjected it. Think about that. As a consequence or the effect of the fall, God Himself cursed creation. He did that. Why? Because He's holy. Because He's just. And just like any righteous judge, right? If something happened to one of your kids, you would expect, if this thing goes to court, that that judge, if he's just and he's worth his dime, he's going to render justice, right? We expect that on the human level, but when it comes to God and and statements like this, we, we, we have a hard time with God doing that. And God isn't arbitrary, right? Doesn't just sit around, well, sometimes I'll let you, let you off the hook, you know? Because He's holy, because He's just, He must punish sin. Not as an obligation, but just as inherent because He is inherently glorious. He must do this, right? Almost like breathing, right? We must breathe. You don't tell yourself, okay, breathe, breathe. <laughs> You're not doing that right now in the auditorium. You must breathe just to survive. That sense. God is inherently glorious. He's just. He's holy. He must punish sin and give consequences. So what does He do? He subjected creation to futility, not willingly. But notice, in the middle of the passage, there are a paragraph, in hope. That's why I put it in caps, in hope. In hope what? That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to sin or corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's looking back, brethren, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right? There's hope. Hope in the Proto-Evangelion. In the Gospel. By the way, there's a seed. So now, if you're reading through your Bibles you're trying to track where this one's going to come from after chapter 3, verse 15, right? Just reading through the Bible. Who's, is, is, is it Abraham? Is it, is, it, is it the whole nation? There's one coming from now Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then in, at the end of Genesis, we see that it's Judah. Does Judah deserve to be that guy? No, he was a wicked dude. It's all by grace, right? But now the, the Messiah is going to come through Judah, a forever king. You keep looking for that forever king. Where is the forever king going to come from? Where is the forever king going to come from? And then you have the covenants, right? The biblical covenants. Later on, you have this wonderful Davidic covenant. And now all of a sudden, God says, it's not you, David. And it can't be your son Solomon. It's going to be this one that's going to come. He's going to have a forever eternal rule. So now we keep looking for the king, looking for the king. Bam! As you were reading Matthew, what happens? Jesus appears, right? In the most unlikely place like Bethlehem. See, when you track the, uh, you get, start with the Proto-Evangelion in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, you're, you're reading through your Bible very deliberately now, right? Trying to, where's he going to come from? Where's he going to come from? And of course, he's our precious Lord, Jesus Christ. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So there's this, the picture, right? The picture is of, of even like pregnancy, right? And this birth. 
says the creation's like that. It groans. It, su- it suffers the pains of childbirth together. It's like longing for this renewal, this new heavens and a new earth that's going to come through the, the one promised in the Proto-Evangelion, the seed. For we know that the whole creation... Oh, and not only this, but also we ourselves. Now He personalizes it. Having the first fruits of the Spirit, you who are believers, you have experienced the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Are you groaning, brothers and sisters? Every day, huh? We're seeking to be joyful. We fight hard for joy by the grace of God. We seek to be fruitful while He has us here because He has us here for a reason on mission. But are you groaning? I want to go home. Amen? I want to go home. What keeps me back from still wanting to stay here, right? Kind of like the Pauline thing in in, uh, Philippians chapter 1 is that there are people who are unsaved in my family, extended family. There are people who are unsaved in our church. There are people to reach in our communities, all of that. That, that, It's like, Lord, I want to be with you, but while I'm here, keep using us, right? Keep using us. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I love that. All of that, brethren, because of the good news of Christ. So there's good news for our marriages, even in the light of the fall, right? Don't forget about the framework, not just the fall, God's original design, Genesis 2, the fall, right, framework, but also the greater framework is the enterprise of the gospel, right? There's hope for our marriages, good news for our marriages in Christ. And you can underline that, put it on all caps, yellow. God is in the business of restoring broken lives and broken or strained marriages, right? And there's a sneak peek. Marriage is a glorious picture of Christ and His church. So Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is great, right? This mystery is great. He's just been talking about uh, husbands and wives on the human level. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He says, your marriage is ultimately about this, right? This eternal thing, Christ and His church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects or honors her husband. Is there hope for our marriages, brethren? Absolutely. I don't want you to walk out of this room thinking the fall, the fall. Oh, man, everything's distorted. Woe woe is us. I think, man, there's hope because of Christ. That's why we live to exalt Christ. Amen? to make much of Him, to magnify Jesus, to not make much of ourselves. Our desire as a church is to exalt Christ. Why? Because He's the hope for people to be vertically reconciled to God by faith in Jesus, but also for marriages. There's restoration in marriages found in Christ, right? And that's what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, okay? All right, questions. Questions or, or comments? I know that we went through these pretty fast, okay? Yes, ma'am. you guys hear that? Why is it that, talking about snakes and all, why is it that most Christians have snakes in their home as pets? Who has a snake in their home? Raise your hand. Uh, I don't know if most Christians, sister. <laughs> you have one? Two? Is it Solomon that brought him in there? Solomon. Dude. <laughs> Do you have actual snake snakes? Oh. Yeah? I think they're just fun. They're just fun. <laughs> so we had snakes growing up as kids. 
One we named Pepe, and the other one we named Pablo. I'm not kidding. <laughs> went, to, went to Mexico on a trip, and we took that thing, and my little brothers didn't want to leave the snake back at home, leave it in a shoebox, and they're like, we were going to go on a walk, and my aunt says to them, hey, leave that snake in the, in the car. I'm sick and tired of the snakes, you know, like, kind of like what you're saying. Leave the snakes in the car, and both of them, both of them were roasted when we got back. <laughs> so we never had snakes anymore. So not everybody's got snakes, sister, in their house. Yeah, just fun. You know, reptiles. Yes, ma'am. So you guys hear the question in a situation where obviously you're the, you're the primary shepherdess, right? In the context of your home, if I can put it that way, with your kids, your husband's gone, right? Is your husband a believer, sister? May I ask that? He's not. So you're asking, like, what does that look like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, let me just say that God gives grace in every situation, right? In every situation, and I've seen that again and again, single-parent homes, whether it's the husband or the wife or the male or the female, um, abusive situations in the context of a home, right? God gives grace. I would say, instead of seeing it as a, and I know you, you don't, but for anybody that would see this as like, am I going to be held accountable by God for, you know? Well, He is going to hold you accountable for being one of the parents, Right? I would say this too, see it more as a privilege rather than as, oh, is God going to judge me? No, this is, a, God has in his providence, and we don't have all the answers and all of that to why situations like these transpire, right? But in his providence and in his goodness, he does have you in their life. They do have their mama. And he redeemed you for the sake of the gospel, right? And you love the Lord. And as far as it depends on you, sister, just be faithful to impart the truth like uh, Lois and Eunice did with Timothy. Doesn't even mention the dad's name. Just in Acts 16 that he was a Greek, right? But it doesn't even mention his name later on any any other place. Um, just reference there passively. It was the, mo- the mom and the grandmother, which I think for me, it's like there's a profound impact that you can have in your in your kids. And I know that sometimes as parents, even as single parents, I've spoken to some of them, they're like, I don't even know if it's making any impact and it's so hard, you know? And I wish, because I, I, God has, I mean, the ideal biblical pattern is a husband and a wife, right? Both of them are, are complementing each other. Yes, but I think that God, this is where the gospel comes in and grace. It's like God knows your situation, right? God doesn't excuse what your husband has done or whatever, right? But God knows your situation and he gives grace. And I would say just be faithful to what you know is the right thing to do. Open up the word, right? And here's the other thing I would say to you. Leverage the church, Right? You're not alone. You have your church family, right? You were behind this, this first service, right? You're not alone, sister. You're, you're, you have your church family, right? So within biblical parameters, try to even surround your kids with, with godly men in the church, okay? 
um, student ministries. That's why we, we do student ministries, because we also want to come up. We don't replace parental role. We don't want any of our volunteer staff saying, hey, I, we raise your kids. No, we're not about that here. We come alongside of the parents to support your role, right? So if you need more of a male figure, it's like, hey, the way that you can help me is, you know, once in a while it would be wonderful to, boom. You know, maybe you spend some time with my son once a month. You know, can you do that, right? I think you leverage the church family also, right? But that helpful? Yeah. Any other questions? Well, we're always welcome to come up after Alexis. It's a tough situation, Alexis. It is. And you know what? The, fa- the very fact that you're wrestling and the tension that you're wrestling with, same thing for you, sister. The tension itself te- is en- it encourages me. The tension that you're experiencing encourages me in and of itself, right? That you're wanting to g- honor the Lord even as in the way that you relate to your husband, okay? Um, is there any sense in which he doesn't want you to worship here? No, I, I, I have to mm-hmm. First of all, it's a hard attitude, right, on the part of the, the wife, that there's no rebellious spirit, that there isn't any, like, fighting fundy kind of a sinful, right? But if it's more of, like, I want to honor the Lord and know how to navigate that, I would say in so long as that wife is able to continue to come to a biblical church, a healthy church, she should do that. If the guy ends up getting violent, right, that's where, and I've seen a couple of cases like that, where the governing authorities had to be brought to the table. And that almost solved the problem itself, right? The, the guy winds up in the can, you know, because he was, he was being mean and a jerk to his family because of the fact of, one, obviously he, doesn't, he hates Christ. He hated Christ. And two, you know, he, he's, he, he was controlling and manipulative, right? I think you do every, everything that you can do as a wife living in that situation to live well, short of there being physical abuse, okay? For me, that's the, the big thing. You'd start discerning that, all of a sudden now, you up the ante on the level of accountability and authority that you bring in, right? But short of that, right, there, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. I think she does everything she can to live within faithful parameters, okay? I also think that, you know, I've known, I've known of a couple of situations where the spouse ended up once in a while going to the other church. As long as the spouse was, would visit, do the same thing. So it's a wisdom issue, Alexis. It is. Every situation is different. Okay, but I would say in so long as she's able to live faithfully before the Lord, right? Because there, there is that reality of like, if he's telling you not to go to the church, he's mandating you not to, 
you're going to have to make a decision of, no, I'm going to go. I need to do this. Honey, I love you. You're my husband. The Bible even tells me that I need to honor you, but the Bible also calls me to not obey my husband if you are asking me to do something that violates Scripture, right? How you do it or how the person does it is just as important as, as what they say, right? Because sometimes the attitude is this, you know? That doesn't help, okay? That doesn't help. So we need to be seasoned, as it were, with grace in our words, right? You can talk some more after if you want, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you so much for the hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great reality that even though we live in a broken, fallen world, we know how the story ends, Lord. And we don't respond with arrogance or we have the truth in a proud way. We understand that were it not for your grace, we wouldn't be here either. And so, Lord, we want to see people find that hope. And we know that you have called us to share the message of Christ and to come alongside of people and build relationships for the sake of Christ. Father, help us to remember that though we do live in a broken, fallen world, you are making all things new. Thank you for Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. And that now we, as Romans 8 says, we've experienced the resurrection We have tasted of this and that you are doing something new. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. No more pain, no more affliction, no more tears, no more separated marriages, no more abuse, no more dominant spirits, no more desire for control. Lord, in Christ, all things would be new. We long for that day. We groan for that day. But in the meantime, help us to be faithful to proclaim Christ and to come alongside of one another and love one another and be of comfort to one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.